And <clears throat> all right, I'm going to ask, um, and I asked them for permission to do this so they know about it ahead of time. I'm going to ask Brandon and Lindsay to come join me up front here. And don't sit down, Ben, because I'm going to ask our deacons also to come up and join me, those of you that are able to do so. Um, as you mentioned, Lindsay's going to go into the hospital for a week of just kind of intense things that are going to be going on in her life, and they're going to be trying to trigger these seizures and what have you, and try to figure out what is the best course of treatment moving forward for her. So I just want... Um, our church family to remember them in prayer, and I'm going to ask um, if the deacons would just come up, and, and nothing spooky going on here, but just lay a hand on them, um, and then uh, I'm going to ask uh, Mark and Paul if they would pray for Lindsay this morning and um, the week that is before them. Father in heaven, we just come before you now, and we bring... Brandon and Lindsay before you and we know that they have a week before them that is uncertain and um, they are hoping to get some answers from this week so we just pray that you would be with each of them and with the kids and uh, with the doctors as they kind of search for answers to see what is what is going on and what is causing this and what is the best course of action moving forward and we just, Father, we know that you are the great physician. We know that you know all things and understand all things. And um, we just pray that you would um, reveal things uh, in the upcoming week that would help them to move forward and to get past uh, some of the struggles that they uh, have moving forward. Just pray uh, for Lindsay that you would just comfort her and help her to... Um, and be at peace with um, the tests and things that are going to happen this week. Uh, pray for Brandon that he would be there to uh, support her and love her and um, just do whatever he can uh, for her. And we pray for the kids that will be uh, disrupted a little bit, not having mom at home um, for at least a couple days this week. Just pray that uh, they would have uh, a peace uh, about them. We just thank you for them and for their friendship and for their um, part that they play in this church. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege that we can pray for brothers and sisters. Lord, you direct us to pray for one another, to lift each other up in prayer and supplication. Lord, we know that when a brother or sister in Christ suffers, we all suffer. And when we are in joy, we're all in joy. Lord, we know that there's nothing beyond your abilities, nothing that you can't heal. Lord, we know you rose the dead, rose the dead to be alive again, Lord. We know that you healed the lepers. We know that you were able to bring the blind to see, the deaf to hear. And Lord, we know that you could heal Lindsay tomorrow if it's thine will, and we pray that it is thine will, Lord. But, Lord, sometimes we take turns, and sometimes we have to bear testimony through hard times, Lord. And sometimes we just don't understand your, your will. But, Lord, we pray that it will be your will to heal Lindsay. And, and, and Lord, give guidance to the doctors that are about ready to work with her and give them the wisdom and the knowledge to do what what is right. Lord, we ask your blessings upon Brandon to the day that you give him strength to continue to support his beautiful mom and wife, I mean his wife and mother to his children. And Lord, we just also too pray for the children too that they understand that this is one of those things that they have to go through, but God loves them too and that their mom loves them and that it'll be okay. Lord, we pray these things from our heart. We lay our hands upon them but we do this in your name. 
Lord, we ask your blessings upon Lindsay and Brandon and the children, and we ask you to have this period of time go quickly, smoothly, and have it be a beautiful outcome. Now we pray these things in your beautiful, wonderful, and most glorious name in all the universe of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, and if you're willing to pray for Lindsay, I'm not going to say every day this week, but a number of times throughout the week, would you just put your hand up? And maybe write it down so you don't forget or set a reminder on your phone or something like that. Just so you can remember to pray for them and for the doctors to have wisdom as they move forward with this treatment. All right. God bless. Yeah, right there, Paul. All right. Well, let me again say happy Mother's Day to all of you moms that are with us this morning and to the moms that are watching online. Uh, we're so glad to have you join with us in worship this morning. But let me follow that up with this statement that this is not necessarily a Mother's Day message. Okay. And there's a big debate, a big discussion as to whether you should set aside certain days for certain messages and all that kind of stuff. And um, today I'm not going to preach a Mother's Day message, but the man we're going to learn about this morning was fond of mothers. In fact, he had one of his own. He also had some nice words to say about someone else's mom and grandma when he wrote these words I am reminded of your sincere faith he was talking to young pastor Timothy a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now dwells in you as well and there's a lesson there for all you moms and grandmas let me uh, encourage you to let your faith be an example and a testimony to your children and to your grandchildren um, so uh, we have this opportunity to impact the lives that God has placed within our families. And what a blessing and what a joy that is. That's a, that's a challenge to grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads and even aunts and uncles as they have the opportunity to minister to the young people uh, that God has placed within their care. And then as they grow up into adults, we, it doesn't stop when they get to be um, you know, adults. In fact, I'm not sure that we don't do more parenting with our adult children than we do with our children sometimes. Uh, and so we're thankful for the opportunity God has given us to pour into their lives. So uh, having said that, let me again say happy Mother's Day. But let me encourage you to, to learn from this man and listen and look for the examples that you can follow to implement into your life this morning uh, as you are a mom or a dad or um, whoever else you might be in this room this this morning, aunts, uncles, whatever, uh, there's going to be lots of lessons that we can learn from the Apostle Paul this morning, but he's not actually the Apostle Paul in the passage that we're looking at today. He is still a guy by the name of Saul. Now, what do you know about this guy named Saul? Let's go ahead and shout out some things that you know, not about Paul, but things that you know about Saul. He was feared. By many people, yeah. He hated Christians. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Just what in the world does that mean anyway? It means that if, if there was an icon of Phariseeism, if there was somebody who followed the, the ways of the Pharisees right to the letter, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, it was this guy named Saul. He was one that you would look at and you would say, that man is a Pharisee. And you didn't say it with disdain. You said it giving him as much credit as you could for the man that he was because he was who he claimed to be. What else do you know about this guy named Saul? He was involved with the stoning of Stephen. In fact, it says there that he consented. And we're going to look at that. In fact, we're going to read that passage of scripture together. He consented to Stephen's death. What does that mean? Well, some say that he must have been a member of the Sanhedrin because they were the ones who voted on putting people to death. So that's the kind of guy he was. If you were a Christian, he hated you. Anything else? Yeah. 
Okay, he could hunt for Christians. We might say that he was zealous in that cause. He was out to get them and wanted to, in fact, safe to say, he wanted to bring an end to Christianity. All right, so we have a pretty good idea that this guy named Saul was not a friend of Christians, nor was he a friend of Jesus at this point in his life. Now, as we continue uh, thinking about this guy, Saul, let me remind you that as we look at these great sermons from the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is a book of transition. I've mentioned this before. It's a book of change. And this morning, we're going to see even more changes. Um, and we're going to see changes right here in chapter 9. Uh, so let me give you uh, some ideas to think about. For those of you that might be resistant to change, can I tell you this? Not all change is negative. In fact, a lot of change is good and is positive, and things have to change. Because if things don't change from time to time, you become stagnant, you get stuck in a rut. And, and you know what a rut is, right? A grave? It's a ditch with both ends kicked out. Okay, who likes to dwell in a ditch? Who wants to be in a ditch? Nobody wants to be in a ditch, right? Um, unless there's a tornado coming, and that might be a, a safer place to be than on the level ground. But you don't want to stay in a ditch. You want to keep moving forward. And the change that we're going to see this morning is beneficial change. It's, in fact, it's change that's good for humanity in general. And so as I was thinking about and preparing this message, um, there's a, a scene that came to my mind from a familiar, I'm going to call it a children's movie. My children watched it a lot. It's a Walt Disney classic, and you probably have all seen it at least once or twice or 50 times. Um, it's that movie called Mary Poppins. You know, all those wonderful songs like A Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Medicine, go, all that kind of stuff. Well, this is the opening scene, kind of, and as Mr. Banks walks home from work, he's conversing with his neighbor. Anybody remember the neighbor, neighbor's name? Admiral Boom. And his name was very significant. Okay, Admiral Boom, and the conversation goes like this. Banks says, a bit early today, aren't we, Admiral Boom? This is, of course, in reference to the 5 o'clock blast that Admiral Boom is responsible for every day. Okay, So Admiral Boom's response is, nonsense, Banks, right on time, as usual. And how are things in the world of finance? Banks replies, never better. Money's sound, credit rate is moving up, 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 and the British pound is the admiration of the world. And how are things from where you stand? Boom replies, the wind is coming up and the glass is falling. Don't like the look of it. A few scenes later, Admiral Boom is on the top of his house and asks for a report from his first officer. The report is this. The wind has changed, sir. Seems to be coming in from a new corridor. Admiral Boom agrees. He says, so it is, he says. A long queue of would-be nannies had lined up outside the Banks' home for an interview with Mr. Banks to fulfill the vacated post of you-know-who, right? Katie Nana. The wind begins to blow harder and blows all of the nannies away that had queued up outside the house, and it carries in Mary Poppins right to the front door of the Banks' house. The winds of change were blowing in that England town and and Mary Poppins now moves in and you know what there the life in the Banks household was never the same after Mary Poppins was there it changed it changed incredibly the wind of change was blowing and things in the Banks household they had to hold on because things were they were in for a big upset of life moving forward well, at this point in the book of Acts, the wind of change is blowing, and it's going to increase in intensity. Like at the bank's home, there are going to be some pretty drastic changes moving forward in the book of Acts. The changes to look for are a move from Peter being the spokesman 
or the big time preacher of the time to someone else being the spokesman. We'll meet him in our study today. We're also going to see and look for the fact that the less Jewish flavor in the book of Acts, okay? We're moving from a very Jewish focus to a more of a Gentile focus. And as we get to the end of the book of Acts, it's almost completely Gentile in nature, okay? Hence, we call this a transition book. Now, some things that we need to keep in mind is that we are transitioning from what to what? Well, we're transitioning from an Old Testament economy to a New Testament economy. We're transitioning from a Jewish focus in God's perspective to a Gentile focus and perspective. It makes us go back to the book of Matthew where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're moving from working with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to God working with the Gentile people and this new thing called the church that Jesus said he was going to build. Okay, We also see all kinds of things happening at the beginning of the book of Acts that no longer happen at the end of the book of Acts. And let me give you just a few of those things. One of those things is speaking in tongues. When we get to Acts chapter 2, we have the birthday of the church. We have people speaking in tongues. Now, tongues was a legitimate language at the time, and it was used in evangelistic sense so that all people would hear the gospel, and even if they didn't speak the Jewish language or the, the language of the day. Okay, so it was something that God used when people came from all over the world to come back to Jerusalem. The apostles, never having spoken these languages, spoke them perfectly and communicated the gospel so that people could hear and understand the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of the Jews, came, was born as a babe, he died on the cross, paid the penalty for man's sins, and made it possible for lost man to be reconciled to a holy God. Woo! Hallelujah! That, if somebody talks about tongues this morning, they want to speak in tongues around you, you know what they should be speaking? First of all, they should be speaking in an established language. And secondly, they should be speaking uh, the gospel. If the gospel is not included, included, then forget it. They're not speaking properly in tongues. Now, I'm not promoting speaking in tongues in any, in any way or shape or form. Because as I said, as we move from the beginning of the book of Acts to the end of the book of Acts, you won't find them speaking in tongues anymore by the time you get to the book, end of the book. Why? Because nearly all of the canon of Scripture is complete by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts. We have no need for the, the speaking in tongues anymore. We have the complete revelation of God in our hands. We hold it here. It's all we need. Tongues was to authenticate the new change, the new gospel, the new message that was coming from God and the building of the church. As the church is becoming established by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, and by the way, you've moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth by the time you get to the book of Acts. So the church is in full swing. There is no more need for these transitionary gifts like speaking in tongues and and, uh, miraculous healings. Now, does that mean that God can't do those today? No. If somebody needed to speak a different language that they had never known or never heard or never studied before, could God give a person that ability? Absolutely, and it's happened. Can God still miraculously heal? Yes, he can, and it does happen. And, and it's, it's not terribly, completely uncommon. It does happen that God intervenes in a person's life and heals them miraculously. And we say, to God be the glory. Praise God for that. Okay? And so as we move through this book of Acts, we see things are changing. We see that God is God's focus. We're now fully into this place where, remember back in the book of Habakkuk, that God said, there will be a time when you are my people, which was the current time. Then he prophesied a time when you will not be my people. That's the church age. That's the age that you and I are living in today. When we understand that God has set the Jewish people aside, We've transitioned from him working with the Jewish people, and his focus now is on those people who are not Jewish in nature. Not to say that no Jews will ever be saved during the church age, because there's lots of them being saved by Messianic ministries and Jewish ministries all over the world. But the primary focus that God has right now is on the Gentile. And when the fullness of the Gentile comes in, 
The church age will be done. God will call the church home in what we call the rapture. We'll be caught up to be with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with him. And we're looking forward to that day. It's going to be a glorious day. We're praying for that day. We're hoping for that day. But until that day, God is still saving and bringing Gentiles in to the church. Transitioning from Jewish to Gentile. We're also going to see a transition from Peter being the spokesperson to this new guy that we're going to read and study about this morning. A guy by the name of Saul. Who when we look at Saul and his past, we've already talked about that a little bit. We scratch our head and we say, how could God ever use somebody like that? He was not a nice guy. Praise God for forgiveness. Vani and I were talking about that this morning before the service began. Praise God for the saving power and the work of God Almighty in the lives of individuals. Because God is the only one who can make these kinds of changes in the life of a person. So as we get started, take your Bible uh, and open to Acts chapter 9 if you have not done so yet. We're not going to read the whole text because uh, we don't have time to do that. You could read it this afternoon when you get home if you wanted to. But would you stand together with me? We're going to read parts of Acts chapter 8 and a little bit of Acts chapter 9 um, in, on the screen this morning. Read together with me if you will. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. So you may be seated and we're going to ask God to bless our time together in his word. Um, And as we pray, let's um, ask God to just use the conversion of Saul in our lives today to encourage us to be faithful witnesses for him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning and we thank you for this man named Saul. Uh, We're thankful for him because we see his testimony. We see his story of what you did in his life. Um, He was a man who was very religious as we first meet him. Uh, A Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, one who was um, committed to his religious lifestyle, yet one who was completely wrong when it came to understanding what Jesus had come to do and how you sent him to be the savior of the world. Father, people can be sincerely religious and yet still be sincerely wrong. And so we ask that you will help us this morning as we learn how you made a difference in Saul's life, changing him from the persecutor to the preacher, that we might be grateful and look for you to change our lives in ways that are beyond our, our imagination and description as well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we get started here in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we we begin with that that man named Saul, and we see his intentions, okay? And I want you to understand, and I think we've established the fact that he didn't have good intentions for Christians, okay? Um, I often tell people that if Saul uh, remained the way he was, he never would have had to worry about being unemployed, because there are Christians, and God, Jesus said, I will build my church, and he would be able to persecute Christians from the, day, uh, from the day he started to the day his life came to an end. That's how, that's how it could have been for the apostles. He was a rising star in the Pharisees' uh, denomination, if you want to call it that. Uh, he was moving up the ladder, and he was on target to reach his goals. You know, a lot of times in the workplace, you have goals, like you're supposed to, um, well, for those of you who don't know, I'm working at Tractor Supply now, so we have goals. You're supposed to have, uh, you're supposed to get so many people to join up for the neighbor's club, 
okay? Um, and, and they set how many goals per the day for you to be on. Well, you're on the register, okay? Uh, you're also supposed to sell the Power Plus extended warranty. So many of those you're supposed to sell per day. And they write it down. And if, you know, if, if we all reach our goals, we get a bonus at the end of the month, okay? There's goals. We're moving in a direction. Saul's goal was to put to death as many Christians as he could. That's what he was doing as he went through life. He, he desired to move up in the ranks of the Pharisees, the group of Pharisees, and he desired to become uh, one of the head honchos, maybe even take Nicodemus' place. Remember who Nicodemus was? He was a Pharisee, and Jesus came to him, and he said, Nicodemus, I perceive or I know that you are the teacher in Israel. There was a head teacher. Nicodemus had that spot. Saul, had he kept going in his path, could have probably had that spot. He was trained at the school of Gamaliel. He knew all that there was to, to possibly know. He, he, was a, he was a star student. Well, as we read through the book of Acts, we see that he was a debater and he was a, a man who could go toe-to-toe and, and, and out-discuss and out-debate the best of them. That's who this guy Saul was. And so he used all of those gifts, if we can call them that, those human abilities that he had to persecute the church, to get rid of the church, and hence the title of our sermon this morning, From Persecutor to Preacher. What a thing that God can do, can take a man who's bent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ to making him the number one missionary, the number one gospel presenter of perhaps all time. What a God we serve. And God can do that in our lives as well. He can take us from a sinner to make us a saint. How amazing is our God. But as we see Saul's intentions, we see that he has a history, right? He was consenting to Stephen's death. He was casting his vote. He was wreaking havoc in the church. And when we get to chapter 9, nothing has changed. In fact, he's probably intensified his desire to put an end to the church. We see that in his activities. Saul's activities first started off in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, again, we see that he is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, this wasn't like, you know, when you're mad at somebody, you say, I'm going to kill you, you know, and you, 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 five minutes later, you're best friends again. Okay, that's not the way Paul was talking when he was breathing out threats and murders. He was breathing out the very truth that his desire, his plan, his goal was to wreak havoc on the church, was to get rid of those who called themselves followers of the way or followers of Jesus Christ. This idea of breathing out threats. Let me, let me tell you how serious this is. Uh, it, it's defined this way. Indicating that threatening and slaughter were so to speak. The elements from which Saul drew and expelled his breath. Okay? That's what kept him going in life. Was his persecution, his desire to put to death the disciples of the Lord. In fact, he lived and thrived off of this way of life, of, of threatening and, and bringing murder about to pass in the lives of Christians. If he weren't killing Christians, Saul would not be content in life. That's how serious it is when it says that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. This idea of threats and murders, these aren't hollow, meaningless threats. This was the real deal. He had all the authority he needed to put Christians to death. His life was bound up in what he thought was preserving his faith by wiping out this new sect that was contrary to his beliefs and his way of thinking. You see, Saul thought he was doing the right thing, but he was wrong. And nothing was going to change his mind and convince him that he was wrong until he met Jesus. You see, meeting Jesus can change a person's life for eternity. 
So that's Saul's activity. We also see his anticipation. Steve mentioned this. It says that uh, he asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, men or women. You see, he was an equal opportunity persecutor. He didn't care if you were a man or a woman. All he cared about was that you might be a follower of Christ, and if you were, he was out to get you. Again, I, we, I think sometimes we have a hard time understanding that because of the, the country that we live in and the country that we grew up in. We don't really understand what persecution is all about. We, we have been afforded the privilege and the right to worship our God the way we want to worship our God. We can gather once a week, twice a week, ten times a week if we want in a place called the church, and nobody's going to tell us we can't. It's against the law for somebody to say you can't meet in a church to worship God. That right has been guaranteed us by our Constitution. Now, we've become pretty comfortable with that, haven't we? We are thankful, we are grateful. But don't get overly comfortable, because that could all change in a moment. We're talking about change, right? And change sometimes is not always positive. Okay, sometimes change is bad, and that change could happen. We hope and pray that it doesn't, but it could. It could, and we need to be ready for it. We need to be ready for when the modern-day Saul's come looking for the disciples of the Lord, because that's who we are. And we want to make sure that there's evidence in our lives that we are indeed the disciples of of the Lord. But what was Paul doing? What was he anticipating? Well, he was planning to continue his persecution of the church. Um, he was going to find the followers of the way. He ran out of people to persecute in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? That they moved, if the scripture says that the, the, the followers of the Lord, the disciples, they moved out of Jerusalem except for the apostles. The persecution, where did they go? They went to Judea and to Samaria. Remember, we talked about this last week, that God intentionally moved them from their comfort zone of Jerusalem and pushed them where? To the place he told them to go to make disciples. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. God moved them to Judea and to Samaria where they would share their faith. They would communicate with others the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. This way was a common term for Christianity at that time. And know where it comes from, right? John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, you can say it with me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. You see, they, these people were following the way. They were following Jesus, and Jesus is the only way to heaven. And so Saul was persecuting those who were following the way of Jesus. And again, we said it didn't matter if it was men or women. He was even taking women captive. His goal was to imprison as many as many Christians as possible so he could stop the spread of Christianity completely. So we see here the magnitude of Saul's onslaught against Christianity. Makes us understand why he wrote what he wrote over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know that last part of that verse? Of whom I am chief. He wasn't bragging about that. He simply was stating a truth. I'll often use that verse when I'm talking to somebody who says, Oh, God can't save me. I'm just too bad. You don't hold a candle to Saul. Okay? Saul was about as bad as they come. And he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. So it must have been true. That he was the chief sinner. God, Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Saul was the worst of them all. So we move on and we see Saul's interruption. He was interrupted in his plan. His desire was to go to Damascus and bring people back bound to Jerusalem so he could put them to death. Continue wreaking havoc, if you will. That was his goal. That was what he was planning on doing. But something happened. God had a different plan for Saul. And God broke into Saul's life. And when he broke into Saul's life, you know what? He affected change that has influenced the rest of history. 
You and I are benefits of Saul getting saved and God breaking into Saul's life. So let's take a look at this account in verses 3 through 9. First of all, we see a dazzling light. The scripture says, a light shone around him from heaven. Notice that the, the Bible is very clear where this light came from. It wasn't an earthly sourced light. It was from heaven. This dazzling light, all of a sudden, so bright that you know what? It outshined the sun. Now, the sun is pretty bright, isn't it? I mean, all of us have driven um, um, into the sunrise in the morning. And, and what's the first thing we do? We reach for our sunglasses to put them on to block out the sun. Or we pull down the visor. And some of us have even added extra things to our visor to cut out more light. Because as much as we like the sun, to look straight into the sun is hard to do. And yet this light that's, that cut, breaks into Saul's life is brighter than the sun. Why? Because it's the Son of God. And there is nothing quite as bright as the glory of God. And so when God breaks into Saul's life, we see this dazzling light shining all around him so bright that it caused him to fall down onto the ground. I like what the King James Study Bible says. There's a reference there. It says, A light shined out of heaven that completely engulfed the light of the sun. So awesome was this light that Saul fell to the ground recognizing his inferiority to the one generating the light. This light came from God, and Saul knew it. The light was so bright that it caused Saul and his whole traveling party to fall to the ground to shield themselves from the brightness of this light. And then after the dazzling light, we see that there's a divine conversation that goes on. Saul heard a voice, and that voice called him by name. How crazy would that have been to be in that situation? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now remember, Saul thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's doing God a favor here by persecuting the Christians. And so now Saul, realizing the divine nature, the divine source of this light, he hears a voice out of the light saying, why are you persecuting me? The brightness of the light had already given Saul a clue about who the light came from and about who was talking to him. And so when Saul hears the voice, the only thing that he can say is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And he knows that it's, it's some divine uh, essence here. He, he, he's been encountered now by God. And Saul was certain that the source of this interruption was none other than the Lord himself. And when, when you have that kind of encounter, you know what? You want to know what God wants to say to you. I, I liken this a lot to Moses in the burning bush. Moses came face to face with this burning bush that was not consumed. It was, burning up. it was burning, but it wasn't burning up. And, and Moses knew that it was the Lord talking. The Lord was the source of that fire in that bush. And he asked the Lord what he wanted him to do. And the Lord said, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Okay, God. So what did he do? He took his shoes off. Saul knew that this light was very much like the light in the source of the burning bush for Moses. You see, every time that Saul persecuted one of Jesus' disciples... He was persecuting Jesus himself. That's what Jesus told him. When he says, Lord, who are you? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus, the one who you say is not the Messiah. Ooh. Think some reality going on now that Saul has to confront in his mind. He knew all the answers according to the Jewish tradition. And even according to the Old Testament, he was very skilled in that. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus knows each and every time you and I face persecution, face a difficulty for his cause and for his sake, he is fully aware of that. Just like he knew that Saul was persecuting his followers and in essence was persecuting Jesus himself. And then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. Now, you have to go back to some of the old-time farming things in, the, in those days. And a goad 
was a tool that was used to prod an animal. Something that was used to give direction from the person or the farmer leading the animal. Animals going in the wrong direction, what does the farmer do? With a stick. And it was a tough, it was a big heavy duty stick that wasn't going to break because the animal was going to resist it. Didn't want to go, the animal was going where it wanted to go. And the shepherd is going to prod it back into the right direction. We've made it a little easier now. We have electronic things that we put on the end of those prods. And you so he says, okay, I'm not going that direction. It goes the other way. You want to talk about electrical charge? Saul was pretty charged here when he saw the light shining down out of heaven. And God says to him, Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You see, the animal didn't want to go in a particular direction, but when he was goaded to go in that direction, because of the pain that was inflicted by the, by the goad, it went in the right direction. Jesus is saying to Saul here, you've resisted my prodding, now it's time for you to submit and give in. <laughs> and there's people that say we can resist the will of God. God will not let that happen beyond what he is willing to let you Go to learn the lesson and then he'll put you back into the right place. Or he might take you home. You see, God says, stop resisting and do what I'm asking you to do. Listen to the truth. Understand the truth. Know the truth. You see, Paul had been exposed to the truth. By Gamaliel, his teacher, he heard the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament, but he wasn't following it the right way. God says, I want you to start looking and listening and following what you know is true. I want you to submit and I want you to give in. So Saul, you know, he's spent his life now doing things his own way, thinking it was God's way. And now we see Saul's delving into some new territory, if you will. He wants to make sure that everything is on the up and up here. He doesn't want to just give up his whole life for something that is who knows what. He delves in and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The first question that Saul asked showed that he did not know who the Lord was. And that he wasn't following the ways of the Lord. And the second question shows that he was willing to submit to the Lord and to enter into a trusting relationship with him. Man, God had made some progress in Saul's life. First, he doesn't know who the Lord is when he sees the bright light. Now he says, okay, Lord, I'm convinced. I know who you are. You tell me what you want me to do. That should be our heart's desire, Lord. What is it that you want me to do? Tell me. Now, he's not going to speak to you. He's going to say, read my word. Read my book. It's all there. I've, I've outlined all of it for you. And if we're being obedient to the things of God's word, then we will be following the ways and the will of the Lord. Saul goes from a man who hated Jesus and was consumed with eliminating those who followed him to a man who was willing to do whatever he was asked by this Lord to do. Wow, what a change. That's a transformation in and of itself. We see here in Saul's conversion a great example of repentance. He went from persecuting Jesus to obeying Jesus. That's an about face. That's a total 180 degrees uh, move on Saul's part because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He went from seeking his own desire to having a desire to follow the Lord's will. He was instructed by the Lord to go, to go into the city and there he would learn from a man what he was supposed to do. You see, God didn't tell him right then and there, did he? He said, I want you to obey me. I want you to, and what is that? I want you to walk in faith. What is faith? Doing what God, uh, believing that God is able to do what he says he will do and ordering my life accordingly. Saul now starts his journey of faith. He starts doing what God asks him to do and tells him to do and he expects God to keep his word. So he gets up. He can't go on his own because what? He's blind. So those who are with him were not blinded by the light. So they help Saul find his way into the city. His traveling companions led him by the hand into the city. You see what this is a picture of, right? This proud, haughty individual who was doing things his own way. 
now it became dependent on the help of others. Whew, man. That was hard for Saul, to accept the help of those around him, to, to swallow his pride, if you will, and to be willing to be led by someone else because he was the leader. He was the one who was in charge. But these traveling companions led him by the hand into the city. And then three days after having nothing to eat or drink, he met a choice servant of the Lord who would explain to him all that he needed to do. And we see here Saul's instructor. What's his name? Well, his name is Ananias. And he was a certain disciple in Damascus. Um, Notice that the Lord chose to use an ordinary man. He didn't choose one of the apostles. He chose Ananias. He chose a normal man who had a great love for the Lord. Would, would he be able to choose you, a normal person who has a great love for the Lord? Are you, do you love the Lord, uh, willing to let him use you however? We're going to get into this now and see that it wasn't an easy thing for Ananias to do what God asked him to do. We see Ananias' apprehension. You can imagine that Ananias was a bit skeptical. R- really? You want me to go see who? Uh, isn't he the guy who's coming to persecute us? He, he wants to kill us? Is this, let me just get it right. Is this the Saul that you want me to go and talk to? Yes, God said. Yes, that's who I want you to go talk to. He was, he was a little bit taken aback, a little bit skeptical. He heard about all the harm that Saul had inflicted on the saints in Jerusalem and that he had the authority from the high priest to do the same in Damascus and to bring them back bound to Jerusalem so they would suffer the same fate as the young man Stephen and the others that had been put to death. Wow, God, maybe we've been in a situation where we've said, God, you really want me to do what? I'm not sure. I wonder how that compares to what God asked Ananias to do. Just wondering. I mean, that's, he's asking Ananias to step out in faith. The Lord's answer, he tells Ananias, don't fear. Isn't it wonderful that God knows when we're afraid? And we get afraid, don't we? And let's be honest, as, even as Christians, even as followers of the Lord, that's what Ananias was. God said, go talk to Saul. And we're, Saul, he's like, Saul, really? He was afraid. And so it took the comfort of the Lord, don't be afraid. Do not fear, because he's going to turn Saul from a persecutor into a preacher. He's going to use him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, God says, excuse me, he gives the mission statement to Ananias for Saul. He says, I'm going to send him to Gentiles, to kings, and to those of the household of Israel. God's going to use him to minister to many people, some powerful people, even the Gentiles. That was God's answer. Don't be afraid. I'm going to change his life. I'm going to make him into something you won't believe what happens to. And Ananias accepted the call. He obeyed and he went to minister to Saul. Sometimes God calls us to do difficult things. And we have to be willing to do the difficult things. So Ananias goes and he meets Saul. Scripture says he lays lays hands on him. Now that wasn't laying hands on him to do him harm. It was laying hands on him to do him good. He confirmed that it was indeed the Lord that had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Ananias had no, no idea. He wasn't there. He didn't witness what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. But when he gets into Saul's presence, he confirms that it was the Lord on the road to Damascus. How do you know about that? Oh, because God told me. God told me he's got things for you to do. He, this was a confirmation in the life of Saul that God was in control of his life. He also told Saul that the Lord sent him to restore his sight and to fill him with the Holy Spirit. He certainly wanted his sight restored. And this might be the first time he knew about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But he told Saul, this is what God's going to do. Immediately, the scripture says, the scales fell off his eyes and he received his sight. 
It wasn't just the blinding of the east. And he was the only one who had the scales on his eyes. That was a supernatural thing that God did to get Saul's attention. And to show him that he is indeed God. Immediately, the scales fell, fell from his eyes. And then notice his next step. You'd think three days he hadn't eaten, he hadn't drunk, right? Oh, give me some food. No, he arose and was baptized. Pastor, you're at it again. Talking about this baptism stuff. I, look, that's one, of the be- that's one of the good things about expository preaching, going, by, going through a book uh, chapter at a time. It's not my talking about it. It's the Bible talking about it. It's God talking about it. It's God reminding us that if we want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we should be baptized. We should be obedient to that command in our lives because it was given to all of us. It's not just given to certain people. Go and make disciples of all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Why was he baptized? I mean, he was an old man almost. He was, he was this strange-looking critter. He really was. And, and yet he says, okay, I, I've been a Pharisee all my life, and I'm going to, uh, willing to give it all up. I'm willing to submit to God's call and obedience in my life, and I'm going to start by being obedient to the command to be baptized. Baptism is that first step in committed service to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, say it again. Anyone serious about their obedience to the Lord and serving the Lord must be baptized. Because it's a statement of your obedience to the ways of the Lord. And then, it's not uncommon, right? After you have a baptism, you have a meal. Sometimes we do the meal first and then the baptism. But anyway, there was food associated with it. Saul received the food and he was strengthened. And he spent time with the disciples at Damascus. And he was encouraged in the things of the Lord. We're calling that discipleship. He was being discipled by the disciples at Damascus. And then we're going to wrap it up with Saul's introduction to ministry in verses 20 through 30. Saul, we're introduced here in this passage to Saul the preacher. God told Ananias that he was going to use Paul whose name was Saul, now Paul, as a preacher to the Gentiles, which is his current audience in Damascus, as well as kings and the children of Israel. Here's his first preaching opportunity. Uh, I remember my first preaching opportunity. It was in my home church that I grew up in. It was at a harvest dinner. I was scared to death. And now look at where I am today. God using somebody who is willing to be used by God. Not because I'm some great orator, I'm not. I kind of say stupid things when I'm not preaching. Sometimes I say stupid things when I am preaching. But anyway, um, God uses those he chooses for his honor and his glory. Don't be afraid if God calls you to do that. We have people in our church who will tell you, that was not me. I'm not one who wants to speak in front of crowds. And yet we find them doing just that sometimes in our church. And and what do they say? To God be the glory. It's not about me. It's about what God asked me to do. God wants you to do something. He gives you the ability to do it. Don't take it for granted. Don't kind of say, believe me, I don't come up here on Sunday morning not having prepared to preach a message to you. I have no business doing that. So I must be ready to expose, if you will, the word of God. And thank you for listening as the word goes forth. But you see, what did Paul do? He immediately preached the Christ. He never believed in Jesus. And now he's preaching Jesus. What a statement that is. How amazing is that statement? He preached Christ. When he set out on his trip, his intention was to destroy the believers and the followers of Jesus Christ. Now he's preaching about that very Christ. He's now trying to persuade people to become followers of Christ instead of preventing them from following Jesus. Man, that's got to be a work of God, right? We see here that those in Damascus were puzzled at at what they were hearing from from this man named Saul or Paul. They knew who this man was and why he came to Damascus. 
Believers were amazed that he was no longer breathing out threats and murders, but instead he's preaching the gospel. He's calling for repentance. He's pointing people to be baptized. What a difference that God makes. He also perplexed the Jews who lived in Damascus. I think these were probably unbelieving Jews that Dr. Luke is talking about. I say that because the next phrase says that Saul was proving that Jesus is the Christ. Strong's Dictionary helps us understand just how incredible this really is. Uh, listen to what they, how they define the word prove. It means to cause a person to unite with one in a conclusion or come to the same opinion to prove or to demonstrate. Wow! God, Paul, Saul was helping people come to the same conclusion that he has recently come to. And what's that conclusion? Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He paid for your penalty on the cross and he saved you from your sins if you will but believe in him. Only God can do that. Saul provoked the Jewish leaders with his preaching so much so that they planned to kill him. They were going to take his life like he once had done to so many others, taking the lives of others. He, his life is now in danger. He would have been killed if his new companions had not snuck him out of the city by lowering, down the wall, lowering him down the wall in a basket. And then we see that Paul or Saul desired to partner with the disciples. After his escape from Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. And you know what? He expected, oh, these guys are going to receive me. I'm a new creature in Christ. And they're like, whoa, hold on. Hold on. We were here a few weeks ago, months ago, when you were persecuting the church and you were putting people to death. We want to make sure this is genuine. They resisted him. They didn't really want much to do with him. And then along comes this guy by the name of Barnabas. And what a character Barnabas is. You know what his name means, right? It means son of encouragement or son of consolation. So Barnabas comes along and he puts his arm around Paul and he begins to teach him more about Jesus Christ, to teach him more about the word of God, to help him understand what this new church thing is all about. And then God uses Paul and Barnabas to go out and to do great works for him. So much so that now he's in Jerusalem. What's he doing? He's preaching and he's teaching and he's, he's, he's debating. He's confronting others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Now he's, on, he's again sought out to be put to death. We've got to get this Saul guy. We've got we to stop him from doing what he's doing. We've got to put him to death. So the apostles and disciples actually send him back to his hometown, Tarsus. And what Barnabas didn't do, couldn't do, Jesus did in Tarsus when Saul met him and, and, and Jesus taught him on the backside of the desert. Wow. Talk about a conversion. But you know what? God took Saul and changed his life in the same way he's changed our lives. He's taken us from sinner and turned us into saint. He took Saul and took him from persecutor to preacher. We were saved from the, for the same reason that Saul got saved. Why was Saul saved? To take the word of God to kings and to Gentiles and to other people. Why have we been saved? To take the word of God to others. So they might hear and might know and might come to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You see Saul's pattern? Saved Instructed by Ananias, as I mentioned, discipleship, baptized, and then he began to serve the Lord without delay. From the very first week of his new life until his life came to an end, Saul served the Lord. He was a preacher. He was a communicator of the truth, of the gospel. He was an example for all of us to follow. In fact, later in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So this morning was not so much a sermon on a great message, but it was about the preparation of a great messenger that God is going to use to preach and to make a difference in lives for all of eternity. Let's, let's talk about some things that we can take away from this message this morning. God can save the worst of sinners, no matter what their intentions are, and change them into a vessel that he can use. All God needs is a willing servant 
that will serve him. I'm reminded of a song that the Gaither Vocal Band used to sing called A Few Good Men. Sorry, it's Mother's Day, but moms, you can pretend. And, and this, the song goes for moms as well as for, for, for men as well as for women. Part of the song goes like this. What this dying world could use is a willing man or woman of God who dares to go against the grain and work without applause, a man who will raise the shield of faith, protecting what is pure, whose life is tough and gentle, a man whose word is sure. God doesn't need an orator who knows just what to say. He doesn't need authorities to reason him away. He doesn't need an army to guarantee a win. He just needs a few good men and women. Men and women full of compassion who laugh and love and cry. Men who will face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who will fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. See, this is the kind of man that Saul became. And it's the kind of men and women that God is looking for today. In fact, he's looking for women to stand up and heed the call and be what God asked them to be in their homes and, and, and even in the workplace today. You have the opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ to those who are in a world of darkness. So as we close this morning, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And, and, and let's just ask the Lord to help us be this kind of person that God can use to make a difference in the world. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are so very thankful for the life of this man who started off with the name of Saul. But then, Father, you changed him. And, and yes, you gave him a new name, just like you gave us a new name. We sing the song, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Father, thank you for that new name. That new name is a child of God, follower of Jesus. That's what you have made us. And, and we are so thankful that, like Paul, we have been born again, saved by the grace of God. Lord, you know our hearts today. We ask that you would do a work in our hearts to help us to be obedient to the things that you have asked us to do. Perhaps that obedience first looks like baptism. Perhaps that obedience for some of us today looks like being willing to go and do and be and say what you want us to do, be and say. Perhaps for some of us that means um, a change in what we're currently doing. Father, if you're willing to use us, we want to be used by you. And we know that you do want to use us because that's what you want for all believers, to be used by God, people of faith who you can use to change lives for eternity. We ask these things and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.